Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Ad Astra, and I'm now joined by The Rewind space correspondent, Ben Lubin. Ben, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me back on, Josh. Yes. And uh, yeah, space correspondent. Yeah, we, Ben talked about High Life with me earlier this year, which is a, a much different kind of space movie, I'd say, but and I'm guessing might still be in your top five movies of the year, and now we're talking about... Uh, another space movie that I'm guessing w- one of your favorites of the year so far as well from what we've talked about, and Ad Astra. It's the newest film from James Gray, uh, starring Brad Pitt, produced by Brad Pitt also. Looks at the story of a guy named uh, Rick McBride, who uh, Roy McBride, excuse me, who ends up uh, having to, he's an astronaut and he ends up having to go to space to uh, track down his father, who is an astronaut played by Tommy Lee Jones, who 30 years before had left on a big mission to the outskirts, outskirts of the universe to Neptune and then all of a sudden went off the grid about 16 years before the events of the movie. And some things come up that lead some of the higher ups at NASA to think that, hey, he might still be alive and he might, in fact, be responsible for a bunch of energy surges that are causing all sorts of problems on Earth. And they enlist Rick to go kind of send some messages to him from Mars to track him down. And the uh, adventure goes from there. Uh, just saying that, Ben, is kind of funny because it's just it, – it, I, I've recently been on a James Gray deep dive talking about his uh, – trying to watch all of his movies, and we were just talking about it before we started recording, and he makes – I mean very – this is just something that's on a whole other level from anything he's ever done because he tells – often tells like close family dramas and set in like little small parts in New York, and now he's literally going to outer space. I know you're a big James Gray fan. Uh, what do you like about his work so much? Well, I mean, there are a lot of things I like about Gray. One is the intimacy, the humanity, the beauty. I think all of his films are just really stunning. And part of that is because of like the great work he does with his collaborators. But something that I've always found really interesting about Gray is the way he takes these very kind of almost kind of traditional Hollywood structures Mm -hmm. and just kind of explodes them in some really subtle ways, like the, The Immigrant, which... I've generally called my favorite James Gray movie and may still be, although Ad Astra is at least up there. Mm -hmm. The Immigrant is basically, in a lot of ways, an Ilya Kazan film, Hmm. except it takes that look and it takes that dramatic approach and uses it for some very subversive storytelling. You can say We Own the Night does that with kind of a cop film. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Lost City of Z, it's kind of that it's a swashbuckling kind of adventure film that kind of exposes the hypocrisy of the mindset that inspires swashbuckling colonialist imperialist adventure. Right. And so I think Gray is really, really good at using Hollywood style filmmaking to subvert Hollywood style filmmaking to subvert kind of what comes along with that mindset. And I really like where you went with that answer because We've had a shit ton of space movies the last few years. I mean, it's something where I am, even before this year, where we knew we had at least three more coming between this and High Life and Lucy in the Sky, which unfortunately looks like it might be a little bit of a bust uh, from the early work. I'm, I'm, I'm still holding out hope. I've seen a few good reviews. Okay. I, I'm, I'm, I'm... Yeah, you're a Noah Hawley guy, so I know you got to yeah. like, kind of keep keep the faith on that one. But I mean, even like I was like, even before like I kind of saw what the slate of movies for 2019 was going to be, I was like, oh my god, why does everyone keep feeling they need to go to space? Like there are so there've been so many space movies in the last five years, it feels like it's really overdone. But 
I think it's kind of cool that in light of the answer that you just said about how he finds these new spins on things, like it felt like a wholly different type of world he created for this space movie. And I really, and I really appreciated that. Yeah, no, I mean, first off, the world building in this movie is actually really incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, we see these kind of little details that kind of hint at kind of this larger, very well fleshed out world. The moment that, that they di- say, the moment that they say, you're going to be traveling commercially to avoid to detection, moon. I was like, oh shit, this is going to yeah. be interesting. No, and there are all these like little details. Like, I thought the, for the way he handled the moon was just mm-hmm. really brilliant to me. But yeah, he made the world feel fleshed out in a really interesting way, but he also used space. So the, the movie's gotten a lot of comparisons to Apocalypse Now, and I think some of that is more valid than others, but I think something that is valid is he uses space uh, in both a familiar and alien way, in the same way Coppola used kind of the jungle in, in Apocalypse Now, and I think that was actually a fairly fresh, like a, a fairly fresh way to do it, just because it felt... It felt kind of human and inc- like an incredibly alien. I'm trying to figure out kind of the best way to get at it because there's well, so a lot of, real- in a lot of space movies. I mean, you're maybe going to save someone that you know needs saving, and here it's you don't really know what he's headed towards. So it it did feel just a little different in that regard too. You know? Yeah, and I, mean, I think even compared to uh, High Life, they're they're both very kind of complex, interesting fresh ways to use space in, in, in a film, but I think they're very different takes. Right. Um, and, and I think that like, there are, you're, you're right that we have seen a lot of kind of big kind of outdoor driven space movies recently, but I think we're seeing like relatively different, distinct takes on space in all of those movies. And I think there is still more ground to cover. And I think Ad Astra, if anything shows that, yeah, I mean, well, definitely. I mean, and I guess a lot of times it, it's more in the context of, I mean, there, there are always implications for people's families in space movies. You know, there's the moment in The Martian where they realize, well, if they're going to save them, they're going to be spending another 14 months away from their family or whatever. And uh, it's the same thing in, like, um, Interstellar, where because of all the weird time stuff that movie does, they know it's going to feel like 10 minutes for them, and they're going to miss 15 years of their kids' lives or stuff like that. So there's always, like, a that's always hanging in the backdrop whenever people go off to space. Uh, I actually just watched Apollo 13 for, like, the first time since I was, like, 10 years old a couple of days ago. And so same thing. Like, these people are just, like, all of a sudden they're really preoccupied with getting to walk on the moon. But then, like, all of a sudden the, the guy's like, oh, my wife's pregnant. Like, am I even going to meet my kid? So that, that's always, like in the backdrop of it but it's normally more like normally more like you're doing it out of like some kind of professional desire for to do something no one's ever done before and here it's like it's weird he's like he's like a grizzled guy that's like already been to the moon it's like no big deal for uh roy mcbride to go to the moon he like casually says oh no i've already done this before and now it's all about like it's just all driven by like you know just the desire to connect with the family and or, or to the curiosity for what's actually out there if he does still have a dad and i think that certainly just makes it feel its own story even apart from the world building you know well yeah one, one of the things i thought was really interesting about roy as a character was kind of this thread about i mean early in the movie it's established like your pulse your pulse doesn't rise above 80 yeah there's no better actor to play a character who you can say about than brad pitt probably yeah, and, and first off, I, I have to say this is probably the most impressed with Brad Pitt's acting I've ever been. Really? Um, I thought it's, it's the subtlest performance he's ever given. Sure. I, I've never been super hot on on him as an actor. He, he's one of like our biggest stars and yeah. one of probably our best stars. 
but I think this is the most I've ever been impressed with him as an actor. But one of the things I, I really liked about Roy as a character was it's, it's not that he's too cool to be affected by anything. He's just entirely disaffected, and it's hard for him to get and he inter- emotionally he elevated. Inter- and he internalizes everything, too. He internalizes everything, but, he, but I, I think up until a very specific point in the movie, it's not that he's like playing it cool. It's just things don't affect him because it's basically been beaten down to him by expectations of being kind of the great man who was able to do everything and conquer everything. He's not allowed to feel and he's not allowed to be emotionally engaged and emotionally involved. And I think that's one of the most subversive takes that like games great has in the movie. It's that kind of these kind of grizzled conquering like great men are in many ways very emotionally damaged. Yeah, did you did you uh, were you a fan of did you like First Man? I don't know if I ever talked to you about First Man. I still have not seen First Man. Oh, okay. Never mind then. <laughs> um, yeah. So not dissimilar in in some ways. But I, I think this actually dives into the why of that in, in a really effective way. But I mean I, I it, it's not exactly a spoiler, but the first time we see him like actually really physically react in a way that isn't subtle, that isn't coded, that is just very real, un- un- inescapable emotion is when he sees that footage of his father. Right. It, it was somewhere around, it was that, or when he finds out he, there is a, like there, there, when he sends the message to his father. Yeah. Or when he, he picks up that, he might still be alive or, or that they might have gotten a response. And then, yeah, that's, and, and, that's and, what and, and then, and then he, and then you finally, he'd been able to get past those psych tests, the whole movie. And then all of a sudden he has to go do one of them right after that scene. And he totally fails it. That's where it is. And it's just up until that point, it's like nothing affects him. And he is this entirely stoic character. And at that moment where suddenly it like, everything becomes real. His father, who is not this kind of abstract hero whose legacy can never live, live up to. He was the man who abandoned him as a child, who he never got real closure on his emotional relationship with. But if nothing else, he had at least been, at least been led to believe the guy was a hero. And then no, he, but, but, but my point is at that moment, the reality of that per- human being who he has this personal connection to still being out there suddenly becomes real. And we see yeah. all of the walls of kind of, who he's supposed to be and who he and and kind of this kind of res, these responsibilities that he's internalized we see all of that just crack and fade away and suddenly there is this very there's almost like this scared little boy peeking through well even before that scene though i think one of the more showier moments from the movie happens after the um I got I don't even know how to I'm not going to worry about spoiling this movie at that point because there's too many just too much crazy shit that happens like early on that I just want to talk about and I don't want to talk around it so um I'm just going to put the spoiler tag on it at, at this point and anyone can tell that we like this movie and we should they should go watch it and come back yeah, and listen and just, to the rest just before you put it on I'll yeah. like just the the takeaway is I think it's one of the best and most daring movies of the year I think it represents in many ways, the best of Hollywood filmmaking, mm-hmm. even if it turns Hollywood filmmaking in on itself in some really challenging ways. Great performance, visually incredible, 
cannot recommend enough going to see in the theater. And, yeah, that was the uh, that was the one thing I was going to add. I mean, I, my, unfortunately, my theater is like going under going through construction right now, and like only half of the screens are available at any given time. And for some reason, it's taking them longer to redo the IMAX. So I would have normally seen this movie in IMAX, which would probably be incredible. Oh, I did see it in IMAX. Oh, yeah. I mean, I it's guess, it's incredible. I already knowing it was a space movie before I went into it, I just knew I wish I could. And then like I was even more upset I didn't get to see it in IMAX afterward, just because of some of the set pieces in this movie were just that arresting even without the benefit of the IMAX screen and sound uh, but yeah everyone go see it for sure don't wait till it's streaming you're gonna miss out on a lot if you do but yeah I get if we're just talking about like the points where he shows emotion in the movie I, I think actually the first really notable part of it is uh, right after the research primate scene and when he's doing his yeah. debrief then and he kind of like just breaks down into the psyche balance there it's like kind of questioning what it, just life in general and that's also one of the first parts where you see it. And I guess it's just that that'll happen when you see a guy die in your arms, I suppose. But I mean, you, you, you start that's when I guess you see him start to crack some. Yeah, I still don't think he fully breaks through at that point. Yeah, because at that point, like part part of what breaking like him just breaking down represents to me is kind of this larger mask he's built for himself breaking down. It's not. It, and at that point it's unpleasant and he's already he's starting to have doubts about the mission doubts about his father doubts about a lot of things and because i mean we there there was the scene before where uh, donald sutherland's character kind of breaks the news to him about what the the reality of the mission is so we already know, like he's already starting to feel that there's more going on right but i do think that the moment for me and the, the moment like at least that just represented the biggest shift was still the moment involving his father right right but yeah i mean i i, I really really was impressed by by brad pitt in this and and i i don't want to like I, I don't want this to sound like i've never been impressed by him as an actor mm-hmm. it, it's just I, I tend to kind of categorize actors as either stars or actors, and there are some who can do both, but I've generally considered Brad Pitt much more of a star. He is someone who is immensely captivating, charismatic, who represents kind of the bigness of what Hollywood can be, but I haven't seen him give performances with the subtlety, the depth, the verisimilitude of some of the best actors working today yeah and i think with this he really has yeah you know like i mean i think my favorites of his are more like i mean what i tend to really when i tend to be drawn to him the most i guess is when he's just doing the star thing and he can do that very well like does, yeah like when he does that notions 11 or uh once upon a time in hollywood or something like that like i i i i, I kind of enjoy that stuff the most and i try and think of something like i mean that he's done in the vein of something like this and i mean i think maybe he's asked to do a little more in something like uh Benjamin Button or something like that and I but like I, w- I was certainly impressed because he, he has to do he has to do a lot in this movie without saying a lot necessarily yeah I mean I'm, like I said I'm not saying he hasn't like he hasn't done this type of performance before but I think he's like this is the best that he's done it yeah definitely um, um yeah for, yeah I know, uh, and actually I, I do want to say and this is something that I really have been impressed by about Pitt yeah more than most other actors at his level he has genuinely made the effort to get risky projects off the ground. And that's something that I, I really have been impressed by. And like, he's, he's actually oh, he's a very, watchful. very good, very important producer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, cause this was produced by plan B mm-hmm. as was lost city. Is he 
as was Lost City of Z. As were Just a lot of, like the the one that like is kind of obvious to jump to is Moonlight. Right. Um but in general But Moonlight only costs like eight million dollars to make and it's like as much as we like James Gray, like people don't really see his movies all that often. So like, just to like even get behind oh, no, him. If, for... if, if Brad Pitt wasn't starring in this movie, there is a good chance that Ad Astra doesn't get made. Right. And it's one thing to like get a James Gray movie made for like, you know, uh, 25, $30 million, which is, I think what it costs to make Lost City Z, but like to get James Gray, 80 to hundred million dollars to make a movie. That's, that's a very different thing. Right. And you, uh, but it's got to have Brad Pitt in it and good for Brad Pitt for like getting behind it. And he's obviously a somewhat, uh, he's not. I mean, he's he's gone pretty hard on the press tour th- for this movie because I guess it, it it is his production company. But it's he he really seems to have been behind it. And apparently, he'd been friends with James Gray ever since he saw Widow Odessa. Like he just reached out to him, and they just didn't yeah. really get to work together until this. So good for him for like trying to finally make it happen in a way and allowing James Gray to work on this scope and on this level that he hadn't been before. Um, cause he, he rose to the occasions, I think. So, and I get, I get it's, as I'm mentioning the budget, I may as well just go there now. I mean, as someone who does like James Gray movies, but, uh, what was it like seeing him like be like, Oh wow, you're capable of doing something like this moon pirate scene or something that was like maybe the most gripping scene I've seen this year in the movie. Yeah. That, that sequence was really just, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I'm not a big, action movie guy but when an action scene is done that well and that inventively mm-hmm. because the way it uses sound and lack of sound right was incredibly subtly done mm-hmm. um but yeah no james gray he impressed like he impressed me with certain sides of his skill set that i didn't really know he had right um i mean i all credit in the world has to be given to hoyt von hoytema who the cinematographer? Cinematographer, okay. yeah. Uh, who was also the cinematographer on Interstellar. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, he, he was actually... He, he's done a few with Nolan, I think. But, yeah, no, but visually, I, I thought the movie was incredible. And I thought that James Gray handled the difference of filming style really really well because when you're filming with a green screen and you're filming with such with so many effects you can't work as intimately with actors in certain ways and i remember i read an interview where he talked about the challenges of working with brad pitt alone in a green screen and how difficult and how how difficult it was and how much work it took to get him to the emotional places he needed to be Hmm. and most I think most directors who are more used to kind of that indie level won't be as able to adapt as as James Gray was. So all credit in the world to him for how he handled that change. Yeah, and I also uh, I, I was just in an interview with him, and it, it sounded like very very uh, like a lot went into just like pulling off like recreating the moon i mean i think it's almost something we take for granted because it because we have seen so many space movies you just kind of assume that like people know how to do it easily because it's been done so many times before just going to space in general but like to do something like that chase scene you need a lot of a lot more space than you do maybe in just something where you're depicting someone like walking on the moon like neil armstrong like it was very very complicated and intricate in just how they were able to get that to happen and not only have it look good but to like actually make the action work was just really impressive and it's cool to like just to see someone be able to do that when they hadn't really there was no indication he was like obviously he's a talented filmmaker but no just no indication he even like that was in his arsenal for lack of a better term so i i, I just i just really appreciated that and i i don't know I mean, it, what, what, one thing i will say about 
Gray's approach to filming that I, I do think kind of feeds into this. He's someone who places an immense amount of trust in his collaborators. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I you know, I, I always tend to argue for our tourism and all that, but Gray is someone who actually has specifically said that not only does he give all the credit to his collaborators, but he's never tried to take sole ownership of things like the look of the film. He he's openly like stated that a lot of his responsibility as a filmmaker is is getting the right people, telling them, giving them a general sense of what he wants, and then stepping back and letting those talented people do what they know how to do. And I think that's part of why he was able to adapt so well to kind of the the budget jump here. Yeah, I, I'm sure he needed a lot of help to pull off the the research primate scene. Uh, what did you? What, I mean, like that was just that was wild. I I mean, obviously oh, yeah. at that point at that point the. Um, the, the 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 moon pirate scene had already happened the uh s- the space antenna scene at the beginning had already happened so it's like oh we knew that there's a movie that was going to have some uh thrilling uh well, well well put together action sequences but to like see all of a sudden just like that that was like an i, I actually saw the movie twice and that was like a, a both times it was really cool the reaction that got in the theater it was like an oh crap moment I, I didn't know that they would go there uh what do you think when you're like, wow, I'm watching a James Gray movie where there's this like uh, a, a primate running around a spaceship Monkey attacks people. in space. Right. Like what, yeah. what, what, what was that realization like where it's like, wow, this this director who I'm very fond of that tells like these very intimate stories. All of a sudden I'm watching this in a James Gray movie. <laughs> so first off, I, I love the scene. But, yeah. Um, I thought it was a really effective early sign of the madness that would start to occur later in the film, mm-hmm. partially because what, what, what was so interesting about specifically it being a monkey, it was this very earth, like it, it, it's an animal that is very tied to earth. So it was something that should not be happening in space. It was almost alien because it was so earth-like. And that kind of juxtaposition of, or of earth and space, home, the alien world, it, it, it all mesh together in this really kind of disconcerting way. Like it, it wasn't just kind of cool to see a monkey attack in space. It was actually disconcerting just because of like how unexpected it was that it was happening here like this. Right. And yeah, no. So I, I, I liked that a lot. And I thought it was a, in terms of kind of the ramp up to kind of where the film goes, I thought it was a really useful step. No, yeah, it was crazy, and I thought it was uh, super well done too. It was just like I almost I just enjoyed the just the, the realization of like w- what was happening in a James Gray movie was like just as cool as the oh, yeah. scene, the scene itself for me. And I, but yeah, they they pulled they pulled it off uh, very well. And uh, you're and you're mentioning like kind of how that sets up the rest of the movie. And I guess I I, I do want to talk about that final stretch, and then I'll go back and hit on a few things from earlier in the film that we didn't talk about. But when he does when you guys get on that get on that ship in Mars, and all of a sudden like bad things start to happen i mean what did you think about that stretch of the film him like commandeering that ship in such an unfortunate manner but then his journey out to um just out to neptune where it uh it gets a little more uh the the movie gets a little quieter and he starts to go a little stir crazy i mean uh i was like i kind of like that like he's putting put in this position where he has to be introspective about like what he's done and it's a very close analog to something his father did. And that's obviously one of the themes of these movies where he's having to think about like, shit, am I turning into my dad? But at the same time, I was also like, man, like 
did those people really need to kill him? Or did they really need to try and kill him? Because that was, like, kind of a weird... Uh, that was kind of a weird sequence, too, where it's, like, all of a sudden, like, they've been told to kill the dude. It's, like, when, when he's literally surrendering himself. Um. So I know, the like, I, I've seen people talk about the last third of the movie mm-hmm. not being their favorite. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. I figured, uh, I, I kind of had a feeling you might. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I love the movie as a whole, so if I didn't like the last third of the movie, it'd probably be more right, hard for right, me to right. say that. But, but yeah, I well, thought... What, what worked so much for you about it, I guess? So, well, let's let's start with kind of the, the commandeering sequence. Mm-hmm. I thought it absolutely needed to go the way it did. Right. Partially because so much of, again, what this movie is, is this traditional kind of Hollywood hero doing the things he is supposed to do and having those things fall apart because of, one, the emotional damage at the core of who he is, and two, just kind of the inconsistency with that burden and those actions in the reality of the world. And you're seeing these characters who are not prepared for the rigors and the responsibility of the burdens they are now carrying. Like we see earlier in the movie, like the replacement captain who at this point is like the new captain of the ship is fully unprepared for, for this job. Right. Uh, he, he can't even land the ship without Brad Pitt. Without shitting himself. Yeah. And I mean, I, Brad Pitt is Brad, like Roy, Roy, Roy McBride is doing the classical heroic thing. He's taking responsibility into his own hands. He's not passing it off on other people. He's gaining catharsis. He's he's like taking care. He's avenging the the wrongs that his father has done himself. But then he becomes a, like a quadruple murderer. In the and in doing those things. <laughs> he ends up killing people yeah. and he ends up committing actions that are fairly atrocious, not because he's a monster, but just because this thing that he is basically believes that he is supposed to do mm-hmm. is completely inconsistent with what he actually should be doing or, or, or how he should go or how he should be going about doing it or how he should be going about it. Like kind of the, I mean, again, a lot of this movie is exposing the hypocrisy and kind of, the absurdity of this type of character and, and that type of masculinity and that type of masculinity. It, it is a very, it, it, it is a very timely movie in a lot of ways. I would say it, it like there, it, it maps out really well, the connection between a very particular strain of toxic masculinity and this notion of the crusading great man adventurer and how those intersect with kind of Hollywood protagonists. I, I thought... Is there a rocket ship taking up outside your house? <laughs> Helicopter or something. Yeah, no, I'm actually heading to the moon right now. I'm, yeah. I am flying commercial, but... Uh, you need me to Venmo you some money for a pillow? <laughs> appreciate it. It's, it's uh, 120, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, but no, but I, I mean, I, I like your answer about why he had to go about... Uh, why the movie had to go that way as far as him taking command of the ship. But I think... And that's a pretty thrilling sequence in its own right. So when you're, when you're coming off of that... And even just how uh, harrowing it was to get him uh, on top of that, onto that, 
onto that ship in the first place, and you've had the primate scene, you've had the Moon River scene, and then just the, the movie, and like the whole movie, I mean, I guess if you were something like Mad Max Fury Road, the, the whole movie could, in theory, be like that, but this isn't that kind of story, so it's inevitably not going to be like that, that level of action throughout the whole movie. And I think maybe part of what people were just like a little... Um, a little let down by maybe in that second half of the movie is that it's it's a lot of him sitting on a ship and i can see why people might feel that way i didn't i wouldn't say i disliked it as much as some of the people i saw it with on that time but i'm wondering what really worked for you about that part of the movie where he's just then all of a sudden on the ship on his way to neptune by himself having some flashbacks to his childhood well i mean i think again a lot of that goes back to what is what is the movie at its core mm-hmm. and for me it was always first and foremost a character study mm-hmm and so when it just fully becomes a character study in the last third of the movie, it didn't feel at all inconsistent to me. And right. I think a, a big, the big part of why I've seen people be a little bothered by, by the last third is because, one, they went in expecting kind of a big, bold space movie. And in many ways, that's what they felt like they were getting from the beginning of it. So they felt let down by what it became at the end. That's not what I went in expecting. And even in the action and the the kind of the thrilling sequences and like the amazing, beautiful set pieces of, of the, the the first half and first two thirds of the movie, what was really grabbing me was kind of the exploration and kind of the subtle disintegration of of this character. Mm-hmm. And the way we're seeing the world and the way we're seeing these set pieces affect him. That's the core of the story. That's the core of what this movie is to me. Right. And so when we're basically left with him all alone and he, in many ways, for the first time in the movie, is left with nothing external. It's only himself and his fragility and his demons and how unprepared he is for taking on his father's burden for actually meeting his father again. When we see that affect him in such a traumatic way, I thought that was brilliant. I I was really caught up in that. And that, that to me, it just took what I loved about the beginning about the rest of the movie and just kind of brought it home in, in a really effective visceral way. Yeah. He's certainly like, He's forced to put himself under a microscope because there's really nothing else to do. There's, yeah. there's like you said, I, I like that point. I mean, there's it, it, the ship's gonna, I guess, drive itself to a certain extent at that point, and he's he's just there for 79 days, at least with the however long that mission to Mars was. He he had other people around him uh, if, to at least kind of uh, let his mind go somewhere else, I suppose. So, uh, yeah. what did you think when uh, he finally does uh, he does finally get on the uh, Project Lima? I thought with that Tom, was incredible. And Tommy Lee Jones. And Tommy Lee Jones is there, yeah. Um, first off, he wasn't in the movie for very long, but I was really impressed by Tommy Lee Jones. I thought he gave... I mean, uh, he's not he's not physically in the movie, but, like, his specter we, we feel is, his it's, it's omnipresent for, throughout... The, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then when he shows up, it's such this... It, it's such a really brilliant mix of self-involved bombast and kind of very fragile decayed meekness yeah so often in movies i feel like tommy lee jones especially in recent years he's just there to play like a the grumpy old man yeah and i felt like i don't know even just the way the camera like sat on his face or the way his face uh 
the way his, his face looked when the camera was on him in this movie, it, it just inherently felt like it's, it felt like something different to me. Like, I mean, I don't know if it's just because he has such distinct lines in his face, and I felt like this character had been built up in a way where like that those those lines in his face just like they said something about what he'd been through in life. I don't know, but like I was like, this feels like a different version of Tommy Lee Jones trying to do something different than we haven't re- seen him do in recent years. I mean, something that has been pretty consistent across all of James Gray's movies is how fantastic he is at working with actors. Yeah. So, you know, if anyone is going to bring out that different side of him, it is going to be James Gray. That, that, that is a, it's been in his skill set since the beginning, and he's, he did not lose it with this movie. But, yeah, I thought this, I thought that ending sequence was really incredible. I think, I thought the actual arrival at Project Lima was hallucinatory and disconcerting in some very subtle ways. I thought that the first thing we really see when he actually enters is the floating kind of, I guess, like flash frozen body of one of the crewmen. And you basically have these bodies floating in space that have not decayed just because yeah that's wild because i mean it's like i guess this is another that's a corner of the ship that in theory maybe no one's been in in 15 years yeah. and all of a sudden you basically see ruth nega's parents floating they're dead i mean it's like what jeez or it's yeah, no, it was it was horrifying mm-hmm. um not in kind of like a a shocking way but just, it just felt kind of skin crawlingly disconcerting mm-hmm and the whole, that whole sequence, there's this like alien kind of bluish glow. And I, I thought it was inc- like the, the actual James Grace direction on that sequence, it was incredible. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was this very effective meeting between father and son. Um, and there was so much built up into those two characters meeting and yeah, I, th- I thought it was just perfect. Um, I mean, it's just like we've, we've, we've spent this whole movie watching uh, Roy process just what he, all this new information he's learning about his dad, him having to, like, look inward on himself throughout and have to really confront a lot of things that he's avoided confronting for so long. And then when he's... Well, and also discovering how ill-equipped he is to actually confront and process all yeah, that. Yeah, and, and then after that, and after him having to, like you said confront all of that uh he basically just tell has his first thing he hears is his dad just be like yeah i never cared about you anyway and it's like jesus man oh god and again it's, it's like even when he does engage with his son it's you could have been the partner i was looking for it's not you could have been my son right it's you could have been my partner in this mission because that's what's important mm-hmm. the the burden and the mission of the great man progress Basically, progress doesn't just supersede family and emotional connection. It creates no space for family and emotional connection. And it's pretty heartbreaking. Like, it seems like he really... Oh, it's, it's shattering. And after, I mean, after everything he's been through, he still wants to bring him back to Earth, genuinely. Even though he, yeah. he, even though he knows he's done these horrible things, uh, he, his dad's done these horrible things, he's now done these horrible things. He, he's, yeah, but Dad, I still want you to come home. You, you, you get the feeling he still thinks, that, like, maybe there can be some semblance of a relationship here. And that... And that is very quickly, that notion is very quickly done away with as soon as they leave the ship. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, in the midst of kind of this, like, fantastic space narrative and kind of the the brilliant world building and kind of, like, all of these unreal sci-fi elements, there is a very real, very tragic, very personal exploration of 
what it means to have a, like to have a father who can't offer you what you need him to offer you and how how much that can arrest your development and how hard it is to get past that i i just thought the 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 best a lot of the best sci-fi in the midst of everything else has to capture or deal with or tie into something very real and very human and i thought i i really bought into the the specificity of of roy mcbride's damage hmm. definitely yeah i i agree and I, I just just kind of talking this second half of the movie out with you like is uh, probably helped my appreciation for it overall a little more because I maybe wasn't the camp of people that were just um, may, maybe just felt a little let down just by that second act. But uh, I, I do appreciate the way the way you've put it. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the science in this movie? Do you think you could nuke yourself across a galaxy and not get hurt? Um, you know, you probably want a. Uh... Damn it, Josh! I'm a filmmaker, not a physicist. Right. I mean, like, I, 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 I try. I tend not to get too caught up in those things because I'm just not a science person to begin with. Like, I mean, I like sci-fi, but like, I don't know enough about science to really get like too preoccupied with it when it happens in a movie. But I just do think the idea of nuking yourself across the galaxy and and still keeping yourself in one piece is it's kind of funny, if nothing else. I'm not gonna yeah, I'm I not mean, gonna knock him any points for it though, you know. And I and I and I did like the fact that you know. I don't think it got too bogged down in the science of things. I think that can sometimes that's maybe sometimes a drawback with some of these movies. Like I did like Apollo 13, but like, honestly, like the second half of that movie is it's a bunch of people throwing science terms around and in a way that I didn't actually find as engaging as I wanted to based on what I'd heard about that movie before I rewatched it for the first time in such a long time. And I thought here, like, yeah, that, that nuking is kind of funny, but you know, for the most part, it does a pretty good job of like existing in this sci-fi space without like getting like, overly scientific in an alienating way. Yeah, no, I, I I think sometimes filmmakers and audiences can get a little too caught up on having to over-explain everything, mm-hmm. the cinema syndrome. But, I, I mean, you, you give the audience exactly as much information as they need to understand what's happening, to buy into what's happening, and then the rest of it, like it's not your responsibility to give them and it's not their responsibility to ask for. This is how the reality of the film works. Accept it. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, yeah, I don't think the movie overloads you with data, with explanations. I, I mean, I, from what I understand, a lot of research did go into like how space travel was handled in the movie. So who knows? Maybe there is something to nuking yourself back and back to Earth. Well, I also think that's just one of the smart things about like the world that he builds is that, you know, this isn't a movie about can we accomplish this space thing? I mean, I think they know like I guess it is a little bit of a question, like how easy it is to get to Neptune. But like, you know, a lot of it's just like it's at a point where space travel is advanced enough that like the stuff is routine. And so they can just do it and not yeah. have to talk about how they're doing it, which exactly. I think, which I think is just like a very refreshing thing new thing to see in a space movie because especially because we've had so many of them in the last five years yeah when you buy a car does the car salesman break down every aspect of the internal combustion in- engine no but you get a few of the new bells and whistles no, and that's it but no but because you know how a car works yeah so why would you need them to explain that to you right if you know how a spaceship works like you're not going to have every aspect of that explained to you every time you like get in a spaceship yeah, no, and you're you're right. It's not over explaining the audience because it's routine to the characters in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, um, I like that. Yeah. One one thing that I thought was really interesting is the way the film deals with the notion of progress and the notion of expansion. Basically, Tommy Lee Jones' character is so consumed with the notion of proving and discovering that there's more out there for, purely for the sake of that. And at a certain point, like, what is the point? Yeah. Um, and there's, and weirdly enough, it kind of feels almost like it, it, it forms kind of a nice parallel with High Life because a lot of what that movie was was the joy of discovery at the very, and kind of the very la- like ending sequence there where he and where Robert Pattinson and his daughter jump out into the unknown. Right. And a lot of what this movie leaves us with is the beauty of acceptance and simplicity. And it's almost kind of the Taoism and absurdism are not mutually exclusive. It's also, it also is a bit of a cousin to Lost City of Z in that way too. Yeah. Um, no, it's very much akin to the Lost City of Z. And in a lot of ways it deals with the trauma that was kind of addressed at the end of Lost City of Z but for kind of the entirety of the movie, like we see the family left behind in the lost city of Z. We see the, the pain of the family left behind. We see the pain of what, uh, Charlie Hunnam's character passes on to his son and how that basically forced him to the kind of that early end. And we see Sienna Miller's character is kind of the lone survivor who's left with the trauma of what that kind of fruitless desire for ex- exploration left in the world. But, we kind of see that addressed in a lot more detail for kind of the entirety of Ad Astra, and it kind of uses the ending of Lost City of Z as a starting point. Right. I mean, I guess the one thing I guess you could say Lost City of Z maybe does a little better is it does a little bit better by its uh, the wife character that's left back at home. You know, I mean, yeah. Some, you, some you people criticize this movie a little bit for that. I mean, do you think that there's a, a version of this movie that inc- incorporates Liv Tyler's character a little more? No. I, 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 I honestly – so – Okay, so I, I, I fundamentally believe that representation is important, and I fundamentally believe that filmmakers should strive for quantity and quality of representation. But this is a very singular, character-focused story, and I think— And I guess the point of the character is that like, he didn't let that woman into his life that could have made yeah. a difference, so maybe so it, it, how, how, would that, how would that jive with that, 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 character, uh, that character trait if all of a sudden— like she's in the movie a lot because I think part of his problem is that she wasn't in his life enough. Yeah. And I, I think just there, there, there's no character who I think should have been in the movie for longer than they were. It needs to be very singularly focused on Brad Pitt. He's basically in every frame of the movie. I think. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Um, and his generally, it actually keeps pretty close on his face for a lot of the movie. True. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I get that critique, but I don't think I don't necessarily agree with it just because I don't think kind of shoehorning her character into the movie more would have actually added much to it. Right. And in many ways, the fact that like she is so absent from it and the fact that he's so un- he was so unable to engage with her in their marriage. That's kind of what we need to be left with. Yeah, I'm going to ask you to. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, we, we see enough of that without her actually being in the movie. Yeah, I'm going to ask you to um, to respond to one more critique of the movie, and then I want to talk about a few more fun things. Uh, can you defend the voiceover? Yes, and normally I won't, but in this movie, I thought the voiceover was justified. Okay, why? 
because it bugged me a little bit. I, I kept thinking sometimes, like, you know, I feel like it's telling me something that, like, it could easily just show because his performance is giving so much of that already. But I'm curious what your response to that is. So he is such an internal character. And I think a lot of what the voiceover was doing for a lot of the movie is giving us his justification. Like, the voiceover is not telling us the reality of, of the world as we're witnessing it. It's, in many ways, giving us the lies and, the pers- and, and kind of the false perspective that he's kind of creating for himself about the world around us. And I think that it adds this kind of very nice dimension because we're actually seeing kind of... We're, we're seeing, like, the mask his character wears manifested in a very different way because we're hearing the lies he tells himself. Um... And again, because he is such a lonely character who is typically unable to engage with people around him, he kind of projects inward and kind of talks in the only way he can to himself. Makes sense. And so I I I thought seeing that actually flushed out his character in in some very interesting ways. And and normally I will not defend voiceover. I, I think it's... It's, 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 it's like a consistent pet peeve of mine. I don't think, I mean, I can't think of a lot of examples where I really think it adds lots to the movies. I like what it, like, I like it in the last couple of Mike Mills movies. I think, uh, he handled it very well, but a lot of times I don't think it adds much. And I, as I was watching this one, I didn't really think it did, but I think at least the way you've explained it, it does make sense. You can justify it in the context of that character specifically more than you maybe can with other movies, which. Yeah, no, I, I I thought it, I thought it worked in this case. Gotcha. Um, yeah. One of the, one of the things I think we kind of skimmed over a little bit that I wanted to go back to. Uh, I, I, I mean, maybe my honestly, maybe my just my favorite part of the movie was just like what they did with the moon. Uh, just yeah. as, as soon as he gets there, it's like I think that could be its own movie somewhere else. You know, like it's it's kind of cool that just like what is just like one sequence in this movie. There's like a, I I could ultimately see like a, a filmmaker deciding to like set its set a movie entirely on the moon about the different countries' competing interests in the moon and everything that goes along with that. Uh, I I I I don't know if I had a lot to add on that, but I just felt the need to like comment on it again and just be like, that's like, it's really cool how it's just like it's one small part of this movie, but it feels so rich. Oh yeah, it's it's incredibly well fleshed out, incredibly. It. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I necessarily want to see the Ad Astra spinoff, right, uh, right. Power, Power, Ad Astra 2, Moon Harder. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, it's, it's a really beautiful piece of world building that hints at kind of a larger captivating reality around it. And I think kind of details like that can, can add a lot. And I don't, I, I don't necessarily think that means we have to see that movie. But I, I thought it was really effectively, cleverly handled. Some people have talked but, about. I've never, I've never watched The Expanse. Some people have said that like that's a that's a show that does kind of deal with possibly like a, a futuristic version of space like that. And I just, it's just never something I've gotten around to. But I mean, I've, I've heard good. I haven't seen The Expanse either. I've heard good yeah, things. So, I guess um, I, I don't want to say like it hasn't been done before or anything like that. But I mean, even if it's on Ad Astra spinoff, like I, I just would like to like hang out in that version because it just feels like something people just haven't done with space. And we've like had so many similar space movies. It's like, why can't we just have something different like that? And that would be cool if someone wanted to jump into a world of that ilk. Yeah. Well, actually, something I was really impressed by and I thought was handled very well was Mars. Specifically, the way Ruth Nega's character on Mars relates to Earth. Right. Um, because we think about kind of space colonization as people living on these kind of worlds that, that are their home. But what does it feel like to be kind of one of the first generation 
of people born for generation Martian on, on kind <laughs> on, on kind of like the an ancillary world an actual Martian an actual Martian yeah yeah um, no I, I, that 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 was like really cool and just like it in that that base felt like I mean those uh what 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 do they call them? Reflective rooms or uh, comfort rooms. comfort rooms? I mean that that was bizarre. Oh, it was such and, this beautifully weird detail. Yeah, yeah. But like the rest of the place just looks so drab and industrial and just like like a military base, not, not like uh, cool and futuristic. And it was kind of cool that like I mean I guess there might be other parts of Mars that was just their one secure base. But I mean it was like. What that? Yeah, that's just like another possible movie right there. Like, what would it be like to be that person and live that life and have that be like your normal? Like, I, I, that was just cool to think about. Yeah, I, I didn't want I, again. I didn't. I didn't want kind of to spend more time with Ruth Nugget in this movie because I, again, I do think that that wasn't yeah the story and wasn't the focus. But that type of character is something that I do think is really interesting to explore, mm-hmm. and I think we saw just enough of it here to hint at what's so interesting about that experience. And just kind of that premise. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just the way she talked about, like, she's been to Earth once. And there was something that, again, as alien as the premise is, feels very human and very easy to understand. So I was really, that was a piece of world building that I was really impressed by. And the, the moon was great too, but again, there, there were a lot of things I was just impressed by with the movie. Yeah, me too. Uh, is there anything else we haven't touched on that you want to discuss before we go? I feel like we've covered a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, one one kind of thing that I kind of touched on a little bit is, I mean, I've, I've commented a lot on how the movie takes kind of Hollywood filmmaking and turns it on its turns it in on itself. Mm-hmm. Something that kind of is specifically on my mind with that. Um, do, do you know Italo Calvino at all? No. Uh, he's he's an Italian writer. He's he's like my favorite oh, okay. writer. He wrote uh, an essay that I read a couple months back on his early experiences with movie going. Um, and all they were showing in his town were kind of Hollywood movies. He didn't know who the actors were. He barely knew what they were saying. He sometimes would catch like half of one movie and like half of the next. Hmm. But that was part of what captivated him so much about them that they were just these kind of larger than life almost impossibly big impossibly grand things that's what like the movies represent to him and in many ways that is the best of what hollywood filmmaking can offer just this this almost kind of mythological bigness and i think the movie ad astra captures the best of that but then uses that bigness to explore kind of the cracks underneath um, just because, I mean, even the way the movie's shot, it's this, it's grand, the way it's lit, we're so close on Brad Pitt's kind of movie star, but slightly craggedy face. <laughs> it, it, it's just something that was on my mind when I, when I was watching the movie. Um, Interesting. but yeah, I mean, I, it's, should be no surprise at this point. I loved it. It's, it's one of my favorites of the year. And... It's something that I hope more people do see, because I know, I know I, it's honestly I, my my. It's not what I'd bet on for the Oscars this year, uh, sadly. Yeah, unfortunately, the reviews weren't quite as high as you normally would want for a movie that's to get a lot of awards attention. It's more. I mean, I think the the bigger issue is one, the box office hasn't been all that 
massive. It's gonna, yeah, it's going to make more money than any of his movies ever had, but it also costs like three times as yeah. much as any of his movies. And, and the, the audience scores haven't been super high. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully it'll like, I mean, if nothing else, I guess it might it, it might help Brad's pitch chances of getting nominated for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I, I'd be happy I mean, for that to happen. I, I think if anything does kind of seep through with this movie, it, like it, outside of kind of the technical awards, it would be Brad Pitt and potentially James Gray getting a nom. Because what's what's interesting about this year is there aren't a ton of kind of sure thing contenders. Yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, I guess it's been. I mean, we're not at the heart of Oscar season yet, but I mean, but through all the festivals, like it was like a very, not, nothing like kind of came out as like an oh, this is going to get all the nominations besides like Marriage Story, you know? Which I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm very excited about. No, Bombbox, my guy. But like, I mean, it's like the stuff that won like the big festival awards is like you know Jojo Rabbit and The Joker and like yeah. all these like divisive movies that aren't going to be like maybe sure things to get like a bunch of nominations. So maybe other thing, maybe something like this could just kind of s- sneak in there. You never know. I haven't, but like I, there's so still so many of those movies that we just haven't seen yet. So it's, it's hard to say, but like it'd be nice one of these days for like James Gray to finally get like some kind of Oscar recognition. Cause he just never has. And he, he's one of our best American filmmakers, you know, 100%. And yeah, no, I honestly like, again, and I normally wouldn't say this. I would love for Brad Pitt to get nominated this year. And I might actually love for him to win. Since Matthew McConaughey doesn't stand a chance. <laughs> sure. If we don't have anything else, Ben, I um, I'm I I think we've pretty well covered it. I again I I I enjoy talking about this with you because I feel like you g- gave us some unique uh, perspective and insight into what made this movie special, especially that second half of the movie, which I mean, it's probably which is probably part of the reason the audience scores aren't as high as they should be. But it does help my appreciation for it some. So I appreciate the time. Do you have anything you want to plug before we sign off? Uh, no. I mean, I'm on Letterboxd and I'll occasionally update it once in a blue moon. Yeah. Uh, as yeah. always, one thing I think since, the, since Yeah, one thing since the last time you came on that uh, our friend Fred started, like, kind of turning into that, this section of the podcast is, like, making it a recommendation corner, too. So if there's anything you've watched right, recently, yeah. if there's anything you've watched recently you want to plug, you can feel free to do that, too. But I know you don't, you're not as big on the social media as some of the guests are, so you don't usually have as much to say in that regard. Yeah, um, as always, social media is the devil, but... <laughs> The, the, the movie that I would recommend seeking out, it, it, it played in L.A. for like one week. Oh. Um, it's called Chained for Life. It's, it'll hopefully end up streaming somewhere, and I really, really cannot recommend it highly enough. Basically, it's, it's set kind of in the filming of this kind of exploitation movie in a hospital. It's, the main character is this actress who kind of grows connection with... Her co-star, who is basically one of the freaks, uh, who's actually played by the actor from Under the Skin, who I, I'm not—I don't remember the name of the specific uh, ail- like ailment he suffers from, but it's kind of a genetic disorder that kind of swells and kind of warps the face. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you've seen Under the Skin, you remember who that is. It's that actor, yeah. and Chain for Life turns into this very beautiful, surreal, reflective, and very intelligent exploration of beauty, value, exploitation, and what representation actually means. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's something I've been thinking about since I saw it. I can't get it out of my head. It's challenging. It's one of the most formally invented movies I've seen all year. And honestly... If you're already willing to see it from that description alone, don't look up anything else about it because it really benefits from g- going in as fresh as as you can. 
but yeah, if that ends up on streaming, Chain for Life, please see it. It's a really beautiful, brilliant movie. There you go. Ben, um, using his LA privilege, privilege to impart some good knowledge onto everyone else listening for a movie they might not know existed otherwise. Um, as usual, I, I, I can be found on Twitter, Josh Chernovoy. Same for Letterboxd, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y. The podcast Twitter is re- the Rewind Movie Pod. Uh, coming up next week, I think we'll have an episode on Joker and... Uh, after that, you know, it's I guess it's Zombieland too, and hopefully Parasite gets to us sooner rather than later in the non-LA parts of the country. So everyone stay tuned for that. Thanks again to Ben for joining us, and we'll see you next time.